Hi, and welcome to the second series of the We Make Media podcast. When I speak with authors and educators about new and digital literacies, I'm your host, Karen Derricades. I'm here with Clive Thompson, who's a regular contributing writer to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Wired Magazine. He's the author of two fascinating books about the ways in which technology and the internet are changing our brains and shaping society. One is titled Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better, and the other, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. So I have a very, very marked up copy of Smarter Than You Think um, because of so many great anecdotes. Uh, as, a, as a media literacy and arts educator, um, there are so many wonderful examples um, and research to, to push back against uh, some of the genuine fears that adults and teachers in the classroom have about young people and their relationship with media. Can you tell me a bit about these new literacies? Sure. So the thing about uh, literacies is that historically, you know, for hundreds of years, we've really only regarded literacy as being about the printed word, right? Being able to read it and being able to write it. And that was because, you know, really ever since the Gutenberg press onwards, print was the dominant medium for how we got information out. And it was also the only one that was sort of practical for us to wield individually, right? You know, we could generate text ourselves. You know, if we had a pencil, piece of paper, you can generate text. Now, granted, it was still awfully hard to generate the printed word, you know, that only a tiny number of people that ever wrote anything uh, published it. So that was not even a smaller bottleneck. But nonetheless, that's what literacy meant, uh, reading and writing. And what started to change dramatically uh, in the last... 15 to 20 years on the internet is the the range of modes that we have to communicate. So we now have photography and we now have audio and we now have video. All those things went from being incredibly difficult and expensive to do um, to the point where only a, you know, like a huge corporation could record video and send it around for other people to look at. Now anyone can do it because it's in your pocket. It's in your camera phone. It's inside, um, it's inside your laptop. And so this has essentially created an explosion of communication using these new modalities or relatively new mod- modalities. Like it was, it's a very recent thing for someone to think, okay, I want to communicate with the world. And their first instinct is to flip open their phone and take a video uh, and talk or to pull out a microphone and do a podcast and to talk about it that way or to... Um, you know, to maybe like use some sort of online software that helps you take some data and turn it into a chart, you know, that you can share with other people. Uh, Or even to do something, sort of a graphical illustration, you know, that could be a meme, it could be some sort of other thing that you send online for people to look at, you know, marking up pictures and sort of making jokes and whatnot. These are all completely new ways of communicating. And the thing that is so interesting about them is that they, uh, they really open up the palette of things that we can now talk about. It's sort um, of, it's weird to think about it, but text is actually really bad at communicating certain things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for, you know, for, for a vast majority of subjects, but every once in a while, there's, there's something that comes along that you want to talk about that fundamentally just isn't really that easy to talk about in text. Um, like I'm a musician and when I was a kid, I tried to teach myself how to play harmonica. And so I went out and did the only thing you could do in the 19, you know, early 1980s, which is to buy a book about it. And it turns Mm -hmm. out that like trying to learn how to shape your embouchure and 
and how to blow yeah. and and inhale the way you have to for blues harmonica from a book from people describing it in text is like virtually impossible, right? You know, but there was no one teaching it. There was no lessons I could take. So I just sort of hammered away at it as best I could. And same thing with many guitar techniques, right? You know, and now when I want to learn something new, I'll find like, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of YouTube videos where people are sort of illustrating this stuff in this sort of really embodied way. And it is dramatically easier to, to communicate these ideas, to learn them. Anything that's kinesthetic, anything that's visual, anything that involves um, a process, uh, it turns out that the moving image is a fantastic way to communicate it. And so to me, one of the most interesting things about the, the world of modern technology is the explosion of new ways to communicate those new literacies. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we're kind of going back to a time because, I mean, there were times in the past that were more about visual uh, literacy and, and non-textual, uh, mm -hmm. um, which is wonderful because in some senses, of course, it, you know, connects connects people across language, even though symbols and, and certain choices are, are, are culturally based as well. Um, right. This is what I what I try to impart in folks is the, the importance of the visual literacy, right? Really understanding how ordering mm -hmm. images and how mm -hmm. images are organized um, and yep. what images want, what images are, are, are saying to you mm -hmm. um, is yeah. extremely important for young people. And there tends to be this kind of um, idea amongst many that uh, that there's that it's a very uh, superfluous superficial mm -hmm. yeah and it's certainly there certainly are those problematic uh, pieces of, of visual sure. culture I mean like the one you know absolutely obvious area where the idea that text is you know the best way or or the serious way to communicate things is in the world of science right because science has desperately been sort of fighting to remain visual for as long as we've been doing it. Um, in fact, it, one of the greatest frustrations of early scientists was the difficulty of illustrating and showing what they were talking about, right? Because when you're trying to communicate virtually anything in science, you often want to talk in pictures. You want to talk in what you're seeing. You want to talk in, in, in visual illustrations because that's how you show the processes, the physics, the look, the chemistry, the whatever it is of it. So it's quite fascinating when you, when you go back and look at the, you know, the origins of modern visual literacy. You're right. I mean, you, you know, you could go back to, you know, ancient writing scripts that were very visual, hieroglyphics and whatnot. You could look at the illustrated manuscripts that existed before the Gutenberg Revolution, back when books were copied by hand, they were lavishly illustrated because, of course, it was easy to do so. You know, if you're mm -hmm. if you're paying a monk to sit there and you know create a copy of a book, they'll often have a lot of fun illustrating the heck out of it. And one of the problems with the Gutenberg printing press was that it made it way more efficient to copy text mm -hmm. because you could just you could take the words, the letters, and you could lay them out in a new format and bang, 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 immediately arrange them to do a new book. Incredibly fast, incredibly efficient, but really, really hard to do illustrations, right? You know, like the, it was just, e it was easier to do text. And so the reason why illustration and pictures died as a communication technique was the affordances of the printing press. Uh, great at text, terrible at images. And so really some of the first, the first people to fight back and say, no, 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 we actually need, we really need images in here, were scientists, scientists of, of the Renaissance period who were 
developing things like the microscope. And they were like, oh, you know, we, we really, I can't just describe in text what I'm seeing here. You people have to see this stuff. And so Robert Hooke wrote his book, Micrographia, and it's just lavishly and beautifully illustrated. And it was incredibly expensive to do back then, but it was crucial to understand what was going on. You know, and when um, Galileo discovered that the moons circled Jupiter, and thereby essentially finding proof for the first time, like direct observable proof that the Earth was not the center of the universe. He pr produces this great book called Sidereus Nuncius, and he does these amazing graphic illustrations that look really modern. Like they look look like something you'd see in like a, a textbook or in, a, in an infographic on a, on a news site today, showing this wonderfully abstract way of the orientation of these little dots around Jupiter over days and days and days of observation. So it's almost like a, a flipbook series where you can, mm. you can watch it move and you can, you can see the visual dynamism that he saw with his own eyes. So yeah, the idea that, that, visual stuff is is sort of secondary or um ancillary to text is is belied by um by science which and science today is 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 often really at the cutting edge of using these new literacies of, of video and interaction and 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 illustration and um and animation because they're just diving in diving in there like there's the, the scientific boom on places like YouTube is just massive the concepts that you can now communicate to to young people, to adults, because of the com the complexity of things you can you can talk about when you can show them. Right. Also, you talk in uh, smarter than you think about the subversive nature of visuals, even within the internet, in terms of searchability and and being able to censor it. Yeah, like in China, you know, they have incredibly tight governmental controls on what you can what you're allowed to say. So if you start talking about something that they don't want you to talk about, then their little text auto-recognizers will immediately take it down. So if you're trying to communicate on Weibo, or if you're trying to communicate on any of the sort of Twitter-like, you know, services there, try and say something about, about, about a recent mistake that the party has made, or to talk about something that in the past the government has been attempting to suppress, like memories of Tiananmen Square, you can't do it. Instead, you'll get Chinese people producing these very witty visual memes that are, you know, maybe photoshopped aspect of something that's happening in the news to make a comment on it. And this stuff is just a lot harder for AI to auto-recognize, right? They can't they can't recognize a sort of visual pun or a visual joke as easily. So that stuff circulates and it really becomes something that that pushes back against the censorship regime inside China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. What What are the main arguments for how these things are really making us smarter? Because we've got, sure. again, in the context of I'm working in this arts education or in, in public schools, right? Right. There really is a, a disbelief that, 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 if anything, you know, the prevailing um, yeah. attitude is that it's not. Like, that kids are losing, you know, they don't know how to speak properly anymore. They don't know how to write properly anymore. Right. All they want to do is, you know. Be online. I was spending. Yeah, yeah, I was at a school yeah. this week where set where the teacher was. We're doing some YouTube stuff, and the, and she was saying, "Oh, this student will do really good. Can you believe it?" And you know, we were talking about do I have a dream speech and Martin Luther King Jr. and he said that his dream was was that uh, everybody have YouTube commercial free. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, access to information. Uh, and, well, you know, you know actually, it, it's interesting. They talked about the dream speech, right? Because like, you think about what Martin Luther King was famous for. And he was famous for his rhetoric, right? He was famous for speeches that he gave. Um, we don't sit around poring over 
texts of Martin Luther King so much. I mean, we certainly have copies of the speeches, and they're beautifully written, but they were written for the spoken word. They were written for the voice to speak mm. to other people. And the power that they contained was one of rhetoric, sort of a person addressing an audience. And in one respect, that's a very ancient craft, of course. I mean, the, the Greeks and Romans regarded rhetoric as an absolutely crucial part of literacy. You know, you had to know how to address a crowd. Um, that was an absolutely core part of being politically involved. They certainly could write, and they could write beautifully, but their, one of the greatest arts was to be able to speak beautifully and to speak persuasively. And so, I mean, this is exactly what one of these things, these new literacies unlock, is the sort of importance of rhetorically addressing a crowd, right? Mm. Um, for two reasons. One is that, you know, first off, you can use audio. You can, you know, you can, you can communicate in, you know, in, in a podcast. You can send audio around. You can communicate in, in video. You can have you speaking, you know, directly to the camera, either in like a short TikTok or in a longer YouTube video or whatever it is, or Facebook Live or something. Um, so, so first off, you, you've actually got the affordance that allows a person to use their voice and use their presence for that exact rhetorical force that speakers historically, from Roman senators to Martin Luther King, have used. But, but more importantly, you now have an audience, right? Mm. Um, you have people listening to you, mm -hmm. and they are an authentic audience, which is to say they are an audience that could choose to be bored and to go away. So you actually have to maintain them. And that's a really interesting pressure, right? Because one of the problems with the educational system that all teachers know is that a teacher is not an authentic audience. Yeah, They're giving you a grade. They're being paid to read or to listen to what you what you do. And even your other students in your classroom are not really an authentic audience. I mean, they sort of are. But, you know, you get up and even giving a talk or doing a debate in front of the class, there's something a little artificial. Those people are being forced by law to be in that room. But when you suddenly have the world in front of you on the mm. internet and you actually have to persuade an audience, you now suddenly all these arts of rhetoric and persuasion and understanding how to make a point and understanding how to cross over domains and to figure out, well, what is, what is a stranger that doesn't know anything of what I'm saying? What are they not going to understand? How do I get this point across to them? These are incredibly uh, important abilities, not just for Roman senators and for um, Martin Luther King, but for people in everyday business life, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the the single biggest thing that stops people in their corporate careers is the inability to speak persuasively to a group of people, right? Like this just this just kills careers, right? They can't get up and and present persuasively to the board, to a committee, to a, a conference. I mean, it sounds silly, but this honestly, this is a this corporations really have trouble with this. And so the the fact that that this world now exists of these new literacies that are married with these authentic audiences mm -hmm. is, to me, incredibly interesting ex and exciting. And it, it's a hard thing for the education system to, to use, mm -hmm. I, I understand, because the point behind education is for the teacher to help to assess what's going on right. and to improve it. And, and, and so it's actually a real challenge in a lot of ways, because, like, I mean, it, it's hard enough for them to be really good at helping to shape and improve the, the written word of a student, mm -hmm. you know, now they have to also somehow develop a competency in assessing and helping to shape and improve, you know, persuasion in five other 
<laughs> media modes. Absolutely. So like all, I mean, this is what all these teachers, when I talk to them, who were, who were doing this stuff, they said, they said, look, this is fun. It's exciting. It revitalizes the classroom, but it makes our jobs incredibly harder. And I, I had such sympathy for that. And they, and no one's given any training or any support for this stuff, mm. right? You know, like there's, we have these incredibly powerful new, new things we can do, but they're, they don't, like, it's not like a push button thing where suddenly the technology makes everything easier. If anything, it makes it harder, right? Absolutely. Well, especially when you've got public institutions that are slow to move for safety, you know, for a number of reasons sure, in terms of yeah. developing policy because they're massive yeah. institutions. Yeah. And you've got tech issues. I mean, I've, I've many school boards that I've worked at, they worked five, 10 years to advocate for. Yeah. Um, let's say like, a, you know, 100 computers or something. They sure. get the computers mm-hmm. in the school. It costs millions of dollars. They finally get it. And then three weeks later, you know, they're, they're, they're useless <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no yeah. one to monitor the tech. There's no, go, you know, there's no policies mm-hmm. around how to use it. And so people are downloading stuff. It's shared, it's shared equipment. Um, yep. And you couldn't possibly yep. keep up even when the tech is changing as well. But again, like you said, I mean, everything, you'd have to be a technologist. Every teacher would have to be a technologist. And and that's that, that they shouldn't be expected to be that, right? That's not their job. Um, the, the, by the way, the, the one thing I will say, the, the common fears people have of, mm-hmm. you know, kids being sort of swept up in the stuff and, and you know, ruining their minds overall. There, there, is, there is one, uh, there is one of, the, of the concerns that I think is quite legitimate, mm-hmm. which is that, so you have all these amazing new literacies that emerge um, because people can communicate online. Um, and, you, and you have these authentic audiences, which is great. But all of these modalities are, are pretty much being brokered by very mm-hmm. large corporations, right? You know, um, you know the, where does one go to communicate to the audience in these new literacies? Well, it's places like TikTok or it's places like YouTube or it's places like Facebook, although that's less so for young people. Um, Instagram, uh, you know, Reddit and whatnot. Now, all of these are huge corporations mm-hmm. whose business model is getting people to stare at them nonstop and never look away. And right? they're good at it. <laughs> and they're very, very good at it. Mm-hmm. So they are, they, they're good at seducing us to just constantly, oh my God, let me look at one more thing. Let, let me look at one more thing because that's how they make their ad money. And so it's an incredibly unfair fight, right? It's like mm-hmm. a billion dollar corporation with people being paid $800,000 a year to figure out how to get a 12-year-old to self-interrupt and to, in the middle of their homework, go, I should I should check what's on Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. That's an incredibly unfair fight. They're going to win, and they have won. And so the hazards of modern technology are not the technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fabulous. They are the business models that circle around them, that have harnessed these things, you know? Because, like, there's nothing saying that the only way to get, you know, the moving, moving image online is to use YouTube. And there's nothing that says the only way to get a persuasive text online is to use Twitter, or the only way to get a persuasive picture online is Instagram. These are all fungible technologies that can be deployed using tools that we ourselves own and we ourselves control. The problem is that they have it's quickly coalesced into this monopoly, and that's where people go because that's where the audience is. So really, yeah, corralled the audience. Yeah. So really, that is the one significant issue that. Um, that I think teachers are rightly concerned about and parents are concerned about. And even, and certainly if you talk to them, even the kids themselves, you Mm -hmm. know, are concerned about. They understand the sort of, you know, maniac loop of compulsion that these companies are trying to rope them into. So, And the struggle uh, for the impulse control that, yeah, that they're losing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And there's no easy, there's no easy sort of, you know, answer to that. Mm -hmm. How does that, how does that work itself out in your classroom? I'm interested to hear actually. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting because, so, I mean, I'm there for very short periods of time, right? So, I mean, in the context of this conversation, I absolutely said, totally understand your worry about about students, Um, you know, your concern. But again, since they are normally consuming this stuff without considering how it's created, this will be a great opportunity for them to kind of get a bit more of an understanding of Mm -hmm. how it actually functions. And that can make them more critical of their own relationship with it and make it make them more aware of how these things are, how these media are constructed um, mm-hmm. and therefore can have the biggest benefit for those who are the most obsessed. Because one thing that has happened for 15 years of doing media literacy, much mm-hmm. long before I was doing the digital literacy stuff, right. is kids of any age, the teacher will say, before I go in, you're going to love working with these guys. They're super media savvy. And they right. never are. And oh, one God, of the no. things that yeah. you said in in Smarter Than You Think that really just was like, bing, like, you know, d- d- mm-hmm. there's a, like a serious dangerous thing that I, that I see going on in schools. It's been going on for a while. And then now that this gap, this schism is growing is, um, yeah, t- adults being snowed by young people's ability to manipulate tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore failing them by deferring, like being like, oh, this kid, like if we can't teach him anything, he can fix my right. phone, you know? And it's like, well, that's great. Yeah. He can fix your phone, but he has no idea why Facebook is free. He has right. no idea how the algorithms are manipulating him. And if you pull back the curtain and let them know, they might make different choices. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. 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 No, I, I absolutely agree. Like one of the most, one of the most dangerous ideas was this, um, was the naive idea. I mean, because there's an informed idea that it's valuable, but the, the naive idea of the of the digital native, right? The, the kid mm. who sort of just gets it because they they use it all the time. The, the ability to like, you know, know how to, you know, navigate a phone or, na- or navigate the interface of an app. Um, you know, an adult finds the interface baffling. The kid doesn't. So it seems like the kid, you know, has some some sort of effortless ability to get technology. But as you point out, um, the bil- merely being able to navigate the interface does not mean being able to understand the, uh, you know, what, what technologists would call the affordances of the tool. Like, what is it, what does it make uniquely possible? What does it make newly hard? Like, what was what was easier mm. to do before that's now actually hard to do with this? Mm. Um, and how is this thing paid for? What is a business model? And therefore, what does the company have a vested interest in you doing? And what does the company have a vested interest in you not doing? And, and to me, one of the most interesting questions is always like, so what does it look like to use this type of tool that doesn't come from a corporation? Right. Right. What? Because often, often that's like that's just utterly baffling to them because they've never experienced sharing a photo that wasn't on a place like Instagram. You know, um, if you show them well, you know, actually, you know, putting a photo online is trivially easy to do, uh, and you can do it in ways that they won't let you do it, and you can do things with photos that they won't let you do in those. If you simply create something to share and edit uh, the photos yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I can show them in fifteen minutes how to like you know, set up their own photo gallery online and do really cool things with it that, again, you know, Instagram won't let you do. And I could, you know, and they learn a tiny little bit of computer code in there, which is kind of cool. And then, but the question is, you know, but how's anyone going to see it? And I'm like, aha. Mm. You see, you see what's happened. Basically, no, no one's going to unless you, unless you send them the URL or whatnot. And so the the reason why you're there at Instagram is because they're giving you an audience. And that's incredibly valuable, right? That's an incredibly valuable thing. They're giving you that authentic audience, but the trade is they're going to control what you do. And so even understanding that, like that moment of like, oh, that's right. Like, like a digital, the act of putting a digital photo online is not magic. Um, mm-hmm. And I can do it on my own. 
But the trade-off when I do it the way they do it is they're giving me an audience and therefore they're controlling all this other stuff. And you know, even if you keep on using Instagram, you're going to keep on using Instagram. Merely having that insight is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. And then they realize, oh, wait a second. That's right. I didn't really choose to have a square photo. Right? Yeah, yeah. And now yeah, I'm starting yeah, to think in square or whatever. Right? Like, I know. Well, and, and, and like, there, it's, it's a great story there. But like, like, why is it square? Well, it's square because uh, the, the guy that created Instagram uh, was a big fan of, in kind of a cool way, of the old school Rolleiflex cameras, right. the big boxes, and you look down, you, you sort of look down into them, and, yeah, and, the big and, square and they point negatives. forward, and you have a square frame. So he was a big, he was a big nerd, and he was also a big fan of Polaroids, and Polaroids are square. And he, and he had actually created an app with his. Uh, he was a designer, and he had a. A coder, uh, Mike Krieger, he's in the second chapter of my book, Coders, uh, the story of the creation, it's quite interesting. They basically, they, they created this app that was supposed to be for nightlife called Bourbon. And it had all these, like, they threw the kitchen sink at it. It's like, you know, like, you know, restaurant reviews, you know, maps, nightlife listings, uh, photography sharing of, you know, where you're at. And it turned out the only thing that anyone liked to do was to share the photos. So they stripped it down to just that. And more importantly, They'd created it, they'd stripped it down just to being a photo sharing app. And Kevin Sistrom, who's the founder, he was walking on the beach with his girlfriend and he was saying, well, I think we're going to make it just a photo sharing app. And she said to him, well, you know, the thing is, sure, you take great photos, but most people take kind of not that interesting photos. They're not going to want to share their photos because you're, and he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, yours look so, they look, they look kind of beautiful. They have color composition that's amazing. And he said, well, that's just because I'm, you know, I'm, I, I know the, the filtering effects of different types of film, right? You know, and I know the filtering effects of different types of lenses. And uh, so what you're seeing is not that my pictures are any better, but just that they're filtered. And she said, well, you better mm. put filters in there then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what they did. And that that created the enormous explosion of Instagram. And, and again, so one of the really fun things, you know, if, if you have like an after school class and you say, okay, let's, let, I'm going to show you guys how to like load your own photo, put it online and how to literally create your own filter by choosing which colors to emphasize, which colors to de-emphasize, like in exactly the way you want them to do. And you, like three lines of code, you can create these really crazy, interesting custom filters. Um, and you, you can sort of show like there, there's no like this thing that like is their supposed magic is not, not really magic at all, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's incredibly fun. It's something you could do yourself. And one of the things that I, when I would talk to a lot of teachers and talk to a lot of students, more importantly, about where they're actually learning the really empowering stuff around these new literacies, like where they're actually getting a chance to really do something lets them peel back the hood and understand mm-hmm. uh, the way these literacies work and to practice using them in really interesting and daring ways. It's often, it's often actually not in the classroom mm-hmm. because of exactly the stuff that I think you mentioned and the teachers wrestle with, which is that, you know, they are busy as heck. They have a curriculum they have to march through. Teaching and training and all these new literacies is really hard. It, it, it takes a setup. Whereas in contrast, when I would show up at an after-school program, where someone was like, all right, we're doing like, you know, photography and photo stuff. We're doing podcasts, we're doing video, we're doing whatever it is. We're doing a bit of coding and whatnot. They could dive so deep because there was no curriculum to satisfy. Like they Mm -hmm. could just do the stuff that the kids wanted to do and they could teach them the skills and all these knock-on effects of learning about rhetoric and learning about clear communication and even Mm -hmm. learning about, you know, like better writing, you know, you know, in situations where they're, what they're doing involves writing. Um, 
you can go so far and so fast in like one or two hours of an after-school program Absolutely. because you don't have a curriculum to work with. Yeah, and the learning by making, I mean, is really yeah. the only... And, and that's something. why I don't know You're if there'll sh- be any education. I mean, but you can get the answers, right? So it's about how do you, how do you acquire yeah. the knowledge and how do you practice yeah. the skills uh-huh. and how yeah. does that, you know, what does that look like? Which makes me think like, you know, Marshall McLuhan has lots of lots to say about uh, about the role yeah. of the artist, but that you know, in in within uh, media literacy, or just but the, there's this whole steam stem debate. Do you know? Do you know of the stem and steam? Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah which I mean, of course, is absurd because they're not two separate things, but they have very <laughs> real world applications. Like know. you know, like they have very real world implications, right? Like the arts is being I don't know how it is in in the state of New York, but art is being pulled more and more out of the of the curriculum and is being told even more and more that it's less important right so I've, again i've been working with young people for 15 years people will always say like this you know this workshop was life-changing i made this amazing thing it was so amazing i'm right. so glad you came in to visit because i'll never get to make art again because it's not important right and i have to get yeah i know it's so depressing it's, it's so depressing it's heartbreaking because the world needs more artists and again when we're talking about competing with robots you think actually in coders when you're uh what something you said about um you know people fearing that the robots will become like humans and really the bigger issue is that that humans are becoming like robots robots. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that's really what we need to be more worried about like you know they can't do the divergent thinking they can't do the yeah they can't do the creative thinking they can't do the expressive thinking they can't do the persuasive thinking right you know so the, let's not build uh, yeah. those skills, right? So what is the role of the arts? I mean, the the role of the arts is, I guess if you were just to distill it to its simplest, it is uh, one of our most critical ways that humans understand the world and communicate what we understand to other people, right? And I don't mean that in a... Um, in a linear way, right? Like, I mean, like sometimes the the things we understand are weird and mm. complicated and seemingly useless. And the way we communicate them is weird and complicated and seemingly useless. Like that's the nice thing about a lot of the arts is that the, the arts, the arts, you know, span from the incredibly practical, right? Like, you know, being able to do an amazing persuasive scientific illustration or a, an amazing, um, you know, illustration of something that is crucial for the public to understand, like absolutely direct practical application to, you know, doing extraordinarily cutting edge experimental art, the 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 value of which in economic terms mm. uh, is in, entirely impossible to evaluate because it isn't done for the purpose of the marketplace, right? Mm. So that's the sort of massive span of the arts. It, I think it's absolutely worth teaching kids the, you know, just how wide that span is and how interrelated it is, which is to say, like, there are reasons why we create and get good at creating culture and the arts and understand those, those techniques and understand um, what doors they open in the mind. There's a reason why we do that that has, um, that has absolutely nothing to do with any practical purpose. Or not a practical purpose that we can spy right now. It's it's we're 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 wrestling with something that is haunting us about the way that we see or understand the world. That's often very in inchoate, and we need to get that outside of us. Mm. And it resonates with some other people. And sometimes it resonates with absolutely no one. Like that's the nature of the arts, right? Mm-hmm. That's incredibly urgent and vibrant, regardless of whether anyone makes a dime off it, right? Or whether it. Or whether, or frankly, whether it even persuades a single person, there's something about that as a as a human activity right. that is powerful. But that bleeds 
very gradually all the way over to the person who's designing something for an advertising campaign or who, who mm -hmm. is um, designing, you know, something to try and persuade someone about a piece of knowledge or or, or health communication or, you know, a, a corporate communication or whatnot. All the things that the artists have figured out about how to communicate and how to express themselves start in that spiritually urgent and, and complex and chaotic world of, of, of art and eventually migrate over there into the world of very practical everyday communication, right? And you don't get you sort of don't get one without the other. And they all, by the way, they also, they, and they loop back on each other, right? Like you take these incredibly practical things and you suddenly, uh, the communications that people do in corporate life and you sort of tilt them on their axes. And now you've got something that's a really funny and artistic and weird, right? Like, which is what Andy Warhol did and which is what the group of seven did because they all started as illustrators of soup cans, right? You know, mm. um, that's, where, that's where they got their, that's where they got their painting chops originally before they started turning into the landscape. Um, so, uh, so, so to me, like the, the, the reason why the arts are taught is because they, um, they amazingly span sort of in the same way that science does, right? Like science, I think there's a reason why colleges have, uh, you know, divided, often divide their, their offerings into this thing called the faculty of arts and sciences, mm -hmm. because sciences have the same span of absolutely inchoate and seemingly useless explorations all the way to the absolutely immediate practical problem that we have to figure out right now like how do we sequence the coronavirus so that we can develop a vaccine right and that's related all the way to the dreamy weird experiments that that no one can figure out why it bothers them that they want to figure this out and no one can figure out what the possible utility would be of them figuring that out mm -hmm. but they sit around figuring it out you know like einstein wondering about about the relationship between time and space and whether it's possible that if you go really, really, really fast, time has to also slow down. Like this is, this is a, this is a, like a, a, a like a, a, an extraordinarily, you know, impractical and useless mind game, you know, that 90 years later becomes incredibly important because every time we use a satellite, we have to slightly correct for the fact that time is moving more slowly for the satellites and for us because they're moving faster than we are, right? <laughs> so like, like on an everyday basis, every time, you know, you check your phone and the GPS is doing something, it is doing this microscopic piece of math to correct for exactly the deformations of reality that that dreamy patent clerk thought about 100 years ago. So both the arts and the sciences have this fantastic span that is incredibly valuable and 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 where one end you know is connected to the other but it's man it's really hard for the marketplace to value the stuff at the dreamy end you know well yeah i mean and and i think i mean there is the practical terms as well right i mean it's artists definitely they vision beyond what they know how to do and then say okay how, mm -hmm. how am i going to do this i guess i'll have to I guess I have to learn how to be a carpenter for this next piece because the the piece is right. the sculpture right. and is made of wood. And so I guess I'm going to have to invent my own new paints mm -hmm. to, to capture the colors that I that that simply aren't there for me. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, of course, you know, the Internet changes collaboration so much. And, you know, in, in, in schools, we're always working in groups. Right. 
This is slightly mm-hmm. different than collaboration. The wiki model of groups, I'm always I'm always considering how this could radically change what happens in the classrooms because, you know, we always say, okay, you got to work in a group of four on this assignment. Uh, there's all kinds of power dynamics that jump off. One person ends up doing most of the work, um, but in a totally different way than this wiki way of where you have uh, consensually some people doing 90% of the work and some people only contributing a little, you know, people contributing as much as they want to and as much as they have time to, but that's still pushing that idea forward, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, collaboration is a really, it's a hugely powerful part of what the internet has unlocked for us, right? The ability to collectively work with other people and to communicate with a wide array of folks who are all obsessed with the same thing. Like it gathers a lot of people together who all have the same obsession. And that's a, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful thing, right? Um, dangerous thing too, right? Turns out that like, yeah. you know, you gather together all the disgruntled, you know, white dudes who are convinced that women and minorities, you know, have caused all their problems and you hand them powerful visual tools, they will become excellent communicators of mm. toxic grievance, right? So so you get the bad with the good. But the good that's there is is quite remarkable. And that's that's people sort of recognizing, oh, we're all interested in, in this type of synthesizer you know we're all interested in this in this form this rare form of medieval knitting we're all interested in this uh rare type of skateboarding we're all interested in synchronized swimming in the same way right and so collaboration you know when people start going showing each other things mm. uh, asking each other questions about their common obsessions this is where an enormous amount of really powerful learning happens. You know, it, it's what in a previous era we would have called guild learning, right? You know, where you, hmm. you sort of gather together with the people who all know. How, so kind of like peer to peer education. Yeah, I mean, I guess really. my question a lot whether we need teachers anymore. I mean, in the sense that we're all, you know, the internet yeah. facilitates this ability for us to co mentor yeah. across yeah. age, across geography, you know, like a. 11-year-old hacker in the Philippines uh-huh. can be teaching. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, so do we need teachers? Uh, here's the best answer I can give you to that, which uh, the reason why you need teachers is that even in a world where you have this enormous resource, the internet, where odds are high, if you want to learn something, someone out there, you know, has formalized how to show you how to do it. So, like, two areas where I self-educate heavily is, I mean, well, in my in my job, I self-educate all the time because I'm a science journalist, so I'm constantly having to find things out. And the internet has made it enormously easier to do so. Like, uh, several orders of magnitude more powerful to do so than, than 25 years ago when I started. But in my personal life, uh, I'm a musician. I play in a band, uh, the DeLorean Sisters, and it's a country bluegrass band. And so I'm constantly trying to master and understand new aspects of country bluegrass playing. And I'm also a amateur coder. And I've taught all the stuff, everything I've, I've ever learned, I've taught myself. So both those things, I rely on a huge amount of online learning. But, you know, there is an ex- extent to which even when I'm very focused, there's a little bit of blundering around that happens with me. And I once chatted with the head of a boot camp, a coding boot camp, which are these things where you go to for like six months. Um, maybe, you, you know, you're 28 years old and you don't like being a law clerk and you want to be a coder. And so rather than take a four-year computer science degree, which is expensive and probably too expensive for you, you go to a six-month really intensive nine-to-five boot camp where they teach you just enough coding that you could be useful as a junior employee. And now, technically speaking, everything you learn in those six months, you could just teach yourself online, right? Mm. But what the head of this one very, very successful boot camp told me, he said, he goes, what we do is we, all we're offering people when we, when, we're, when we have a teacher in the room 
and when we have a curriculum, is we're telling them the order in which they should encounter things. Right. Yeah. How right? to how to acquire the knowledge. Exactly. Not, yeah. They don't have to build that pathway themselves. If they want to go down byways, you know, they can, but they don't have to get lost going down routes that might be kind of useless. And so it turns out that one of the most powerful things that that teachers offer is is the journey, is the pathway, uh, you know, is the curriculum. And, and like, that's, that's incredibly, that's a, such an incredibly powerful part. Now, obviously, the challenge, you know, I think that began our conversation is how does a, a modern curriculum incorporate some of these new... Those new ways of learning. Ways of learning, ways of communicating. That's really hard to do, and it's necessarily slow, because when you're doing it in public institutions, they think a good long time before they change anything, as they should. Mm -hmm, Absolutely, yeah. And I would say it's mostly, I would say it's mostly working, right? Like, I mean, I don't think people say, you know, schools are failing kids. I, you know, I think that, I think what's failing kids is probably it's probably mostly classroom size. <laughs> if you cut it in half, oh, right, you could yeah. have the exact same curriculum. So, like, this is this is a this is a money problem. This is not a structural problem, right? Mm, people, you know, like mm-hmm, what do the rich yeah. people do? They send their kids to classes with fifteen people in it. You know, mm. they basically the same curriculum, but way more flexible because the teacher has more time per student. Absolutely. Right? So, so yes, I, do I think that we need teachers and do we we need and are schools still useful? Yes, I, I absolutely think they are. I think they could adapt far more to take advantage of these enormous resources online, particularly when it comes to students who have, who are perspicacious in a particular area that just want to gallop at a speed that the rest of their peers can't in this one area, Mm. you know? That's really where like, wow, if you actually had a 15-person class, well-resourced with online stuff, it would be the best of all possible worlds because you'd have a teacher there helping to guide. You'd have a small enough cohort of students that um, the teacher would be able to devote much more time to customizing what's going on in the classroom and allowing them when they when they are able to and want to gallop to do so you could just have such fantastic outcomes so to me to me that that's really what, what it's all about right it's very important to have just like the slow food movement it's important to have institutions that don't move fast and break things yeah no absolutely yeah yeah they do things methodically yeah, yeah thoughtfully full of thought right not let's we'll see we'll see what happens later but like no we're gonna think about it beforehand because it's important and because yeah. the, the people that we're working with are, are you know are vulnerable or are, are malleable but yeah. I mean what's it's interesting too is that you know again the the internet and all that stuff is just getting faster and we were, we were having a conversation about collaboration and it seems like you know the internet at first was like okay so here we are we're all here what can we do together now that we're all in the room together right mm-hmm. how can we pool our knowledge how can we do you know pool our answers and all this and now we've moved into the like there's so much we've uploaded so much mm-hmm. that now there's so much management work right so like how do we manage all of this together like youtube videos amazing how to's right you never need to again go wait for the library to you know how to code or whatever book you can mm-hmm. go on online and do these videos but now there are so many that your searching skills again become very very important because it now becomes yeah no yeah. you get lost in a million videos of like oh this is an older version of photoshop so it's like yeah, I want timeline yeah. 2020 um, mm-hmm. and tell it exactly what what version you're, you're working with and and this this is the interesting complication or paradox or thing about the internet and searching and finding mm. uh, answers is that um the you know people would say like well you've got the internet you can find whatever you need so a basic education just isn't is crucial anymore, right? Mm. 
But the problem is, is that this is essentially a like university class resource, right? You know, it's 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 like this massive research library filled with material of amazing quality and terrible quality, cheek by jowl. And so, to be able to understand what what it is you're looking for and how to recognize when you found it actually requires you to already have a fair amount of knowledge about a domain, which you can really only get if someone is instructing you uh, in a school, right? Or another way of putting it, to, to take advantage of what's out there on the internet actually makes a sort of a, a like a basic grounding in the everyday knowledge of the world that uh, a K-12 education traditionally gave us. It actually makes it even more important, right? Because unless you have that basic knowledge of how the world works, you won't even be able to go out and find the things you need to find. Like, you have to have a certain domain mastery in the same way that like, if you want to go out and like, and, and, and go deep into Photoshop, you need to know enough about Photoshop to begin with that, you know, that you can ask those questions or like with coding, like, you know, I'm coding moves incredibly quickly too. Like, like a language will literally change and evolve over a year or two and things that were incredibly dominant, the way that you would solve a problem in two years later are passe or even dangerously bad. But Hmm. When you, so when you start out, as I did five or six years ago, you have no idea about that. And so you can spend a huge amount of time learning stuff that is, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant, but it's confusing how it integrates with other things. And so there's this period when suddenly I had enough knowledge that suddenly I could actually move much more quickly because I could actually ask the, 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 uh, the correct questions. I could identify the holes I had. And there's a part of me, it's like, wow, you know, if I had done a boot camp, I would have got that in three months instead of blundering around in four months, four years, right? <laughs> so, right. you know, you know, behold the value of like a formal education, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a classroom. It, you know, you can impart, you need to get that baseline knowledge of of how the world works, how how the government works, how a company works, how a family works, how psych- psychology works, how philosophy works, how math works, so that you can go forward and now teach yourself for the rest of your life online. Right. Wonderful was smarter than you think was written uh almost seven years ago now which is you know like uh, a, yeah, a generation uh-huh. in, in internet yeah world. really <laughs> uh still very very relevant and uh, um what's some wonderful insights coders is uh is just from last year so what's the next thing you're going to be writing about i think it's probably i don't know for sure but i i would think it might be about um it might be about energy i'm very interested in uh the ways that we generate and use energy and the climate implications of it and some of the and and some of the big questions of how we sort of you know move around society how we how we get from point a to point b so in this i've been writing a lot more about it in recent years and i think it's probably going to be something that i move towards my next book but i don't know for sure yet i'm still thinking about it still thinking about it i know that i'm writing a lot about energy i'm writing a lot about ai i'm writing a lot about transportation so it might be something that sort of fits in all those boxes at once Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Not at all. It was a lot of, lot of fun having a conversation. Let's do it again sometime. Definitely. And thanks to those who listened. Join me for the next episode when I talk to educator Paul Darvasi about game-based education, how augmented reality can be used to animate urban spaces for learning, and the role of artificial intelligence in revolutionizing metrics for evaluating student success. Until then... Stay creative and do be artists.